morning. Won't get very far without my presenter here. Have to stay behind the podiums. Better go back and get it. Glad to have each of you here this morning. Uh, as has been said, we're thankful for your presence, especially those of you that are visiting with us. Uh, hope you're blessed by being here and uh, benefited by the message of the morning as well. And I appreciate the prayer on my behalf. And it's always our desire that we would teach something edifying and beneficial and help build you up in the faith. We've uh, kind of embarked on a new series this month in the book of Acts and looking forward to all the studies the guys are going to do this month on all the different conversion examples that we find there in the book of Acts. And as I was thinking about that and looking at some of those scriptures that they're going to be studying on, I was kind of reading some of the supporting passages and decided to try to find something to teach around that as well. And I spent quite a bit of time in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17. I was thinking about the idea of all these different conversions, right, and what we're going to be studying about. And we've already heard a couple of lessons about Simon and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and those guys and how it's so interesting that in each of these conversion stories that we read about, there's kind of two parts to it, right? You have the, the person that's being converted, and that's what we focus on often, but you always have the, the person evangelizing them. And so the evangelism in the book of Acts has kind of been on my mind, and I think we find a lot of good admonition about that in Acts chapter 17. It's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. Evangelism for me has been something that's always been a challenge personally. It's not something that is comfortable in any way for me. Um, it's been something as I've grew up in and around the church and heard people talk about evangelism and how you go about doing that. It's always been something that has been a very, something that I viewed as very academic, that I needed to know how to take a five-part study and how to deliver a five-part study to somebody and that there were very set mechanics on how to do that and how you uh, go about getting somebody to do that and sitting down with you and then what that leads to. And it's always been very challenging to me and if you don't know what a five-part study is this morning, it's just a set of tools that somebody came up with sometime that goes through the Bible, and it's designed to interact with somebody that may not know much about the Bible and teach them about the nature of God and man and the relationship man has with God and how that relationship went bad and who was responsible for that and who was responsible for correcting it. And it's just a tool. And as you get older, you kind of realize certain things. But for me, that academic view of evangelism, I think, I feel like has been something that I've let hold me back. And as I was reading in Acts chapter 17 and thinking about how Paul interacted with people uh, there in that chapter and on all, the, all his journeys and all the cities he visited and churches he started, I think that there's some lessons in what I'm calling real-world evangelism. What can, what can we look at from a real-world perspective? Those tools may be part of that conversation and part of the things that we do, but there's some conceptual things and some lessons I think we can learn that if we'll get good at those lessons, it will allow us to evangelize better. And when we're talking about evangelism, we're talking about what we're reading about in the book of Acts this month. We're talking about how do we convey the message of the gospel to people, and what does that mean, and how does that make a real impact in their lives, everyday lives of real men and women that just go about their lives just like we do. And we read these stories of these characters, and we think about them sometimes almost in a fictional way as characters in some famous book that we've read about over the years. But they're just real men and women that are struggling with life, that are working jobs like we work and have daily problems like all of us have problems. And so I think there's some really effective messages in Acts chapter 17 in real-world evangelism. Now, if you've studied any about the book of Acts, you, you know that that often that has been categorized by scholars and people that study the Bible over the years. They categorize Paul's um, 
teaching and evangelism there into, what, in, into missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter 17 here, we're really kind of in the middle of his second missionary journey. So if you look at uh, a map of, that represents that area at the time, this is modern-day Turkey, and then this is modern-day Greece. And really, if I can get this to work, which is a big if, let me see here, there we go. This area here is where we're talking about. So he's over here um, in and around Troas. In Acts chapter 16, you might remember the Macedonian call. Um, Paul had a vision in Acts chapter 16 of a man from Macedonia saying, come help us out. And it stirred Paul, and he was convinced that God was telling him he needed to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. And so this area in the top left, modern-day Greece, is Macedonia. So Paul travels here to Troas, goes across the sea there, and lands on the other side in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, they're in Philippi. We're going to read a couple of conversions there this month about Lydia and about the Philippian jailer and the events that occurred there. And Acts chapter 17 picks up as he's leaving Philippi. And so that's where I want to start our conversation uh, this morning. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and as Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want to back up for just a minute. I forgot to say one thing I was going to say about the map here. So you can see at Philippi, after he leaves here, it says he made a couple of quick stops there. The three cities that are key here, Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. So modern-day Greece, these three cities is where he, we're spending our time here in Acts chapter 17. And if you're following along, we're going to bounce around a little bit in the chapter, but you can keep your finger there. We're going to throw all the scriptures up here to talk about them as well. But those are the three key cities that he's preaching at here in Acts chapter 17. So in verse number 1, it, he talks about how he entered a synagogue in Thessalonica, uh, to have some conversation with some Jews here. And I think the first lesson that we learn from him, and really we see in any of it, if you want to go look at any of his preaching, you really see this kind of lesson. And I think it's such a critical part of, of real-world evangelism is knowing who you're talking to, knowing your audience. And what I mean by that is when he encountered a group of people, he didn't have a cookie-cutter approach. He didn't say, pull my five-part study out of my back pocket, flip to page three, this is what I start to say. You know, you think about a salesman or these telemarketers that blow up our phones all the time. They, it's a very scripted approach to people. The person that calls telling me that my, uh, I lost the word. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? My extended warranty is expired. The person that calls it has no idea about me. They know I bought a car because somebody sold them some information five years ago, but they have no idea what my current situation's like. They, ha they know nothing about me other than I bought a car. And that's how sales works many times, these cold calls and these telemarketers. They know nothing about us. And how effective is it? Hang up. Most of the time now, we don't even answer the call. We just, if it's not a number we recognize, we don't even pick up. It's not an effective sales tool. And let's be honest, at the end of the day, we're selling the gospel to people. We are salesmen for God in this. Now, I'm not trying to equate us to telemarketers or things like that, but I think there's some lessons we can learn from that. Maybe it's what not to do as we interact with people and try to have conversations with people in real life. But we're selling the gospel. We're trying to persuade people that this is something that's important to them. 
And that's exactly what we're doing is we're selling that. And so I think that the important lesson, or an important lesson here, is knowing our audience. In this case, he finds himself talking with a group of Jews. And if you think about it, what would the Jew know about? Paul's very educated himself. He's familiar with these people. He knows what they know. And so how he interacts with them, is, it talks about that, how he reasons with them. And he talks about, he knows it's a group of people that would have known about a Messiah. They would have read before about a coming Messiah. They would have been familiar with that concept. He said, this Messiah is the Jesus that I'm talking about. And he used that to engage with them. And he knew his audience. This Jesus that I'm telling you about is that Christ. And the way he would interact with a group of Jews like this is very different from the way he would interact with somebody else. And in fact, in this chapter, we read about that. This is where we're going to bounce around a little bit. Further down in the chapter, in verse number 17, he's moved on to Athens. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, down to Berea. We're going to talk about that as well. And then he ends up in Athens. Here in in, uh, verse number 17, he finds another group of Jews. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, but also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing in something new. So it's pretty interesting to me here because it describes kind of three different groups of people, right? He's talk, talking to the Jews in this synagogue, but then he also just goes into a marketplace. And, I, you know, I think about this. Athens at the time would have obviously been a fairly significant cultural spot. And it, I don't know how to equate that to us these days, but maybe New York City. And you think about the difference you might find if you walked into some kind of church or other religious institution in New York City versus going to Times Square and standing on the corner talking to people. And I think that's a good illustration for thinking about understanding who our audience is. If you walk into a church, a church in New York City may be very different from a church in Amarillo, Texas, number one. But going into a church in New York City, you're going to have some level of religion there. People are going to have some form of interest, some religion, maybe Christianity or some variant of that. Maybe something completely different, but some interest in religion. But if you go stand on the corner in Times Square, religion is not on people's minds. I've been to that place, and it's not there. And it's just not something that people think about. And so understanding our audience is an important tool in evangelism. I'm not saying we shouldn't evangelize in Times Square in New York. I'm just saying the way we do that might be different in how we approach it versus how we would in a church or a synagogue. And I think that's a really great lesson we learned from him here. We have to know our people that we're trying to evangelize. And again, I don't think a cookie-cutter approach works for any of this stuff. And I think uh, experience is a teacher of that, and I think the scriptures are a teacher of that as well. It won't work in all situations. And I want to be clear this morning that I'm not talking about changing the message of the gospel. That's not what we're trying to talk about. We're talking about changing how we engage to deliver the message of the gospel. We can learn some really good lessons from here on that. And I think one of the key differences in people is we think about understanding Uh, understanding our audience and knowing our audience. You know, some of that was truly education stuff for Paul. He was educated as a Jew. He knew the, the law and knew what they would be interested in. 
Some of that was relationship type uh, understanding and being informed on relationships. But I think one of the key things that we learn here is that not all hearts are the same. And I think effective evangelism requires you to understand that for multiple purposes. We're going to talk about some other reasons later that are real similar to this. But understanding that not all hearts are the same. Uh, Back to verse number 4 of Acts chapter 17. So he's in Thessalonica here. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, out, to, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So as we see him delivering his message, it talks about the various uh, responses to that, right? said many people believed that message, but some people flat out got mad about it. And apparently he was staying with Jason in and around his house. And they, these, these Jews that were fired up about this went looking for him at the time, went to find him, bring him out, right? Later in the chapter, after he moves on to Berea, it says, now these Jews, talking about a different group of Jews in Berea, now these Jews were more, more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So you can see the very different hearts of the people that he was talking to here. We don't have a lot of information about, did he deliver the message differently? Did he do it the same? Was, did he use a cookie cutter? We don't have a lot of information about all that. But I think, I think the scriptures show in multiple occasions, even in this chapter, that the receptiveness to the message is just going to differ sometimes. People have different things on their hearts. They have different personal desires. They want different things out of life. Some people may be interested in religion. Some people may not care at all about religion. And so it's going to fall on different hearts. And I think to be effective at evangelism, we've got to understand that, not only from the standpoint of knowing our audience and understanding how to interact with them, but just the fact that there's going to be differing results, and that's not always on us. People just have different hearts. They may not care about it at all. And that's just part of the game. I like how he talks about those in Berea being more noble. You know, I've, I've always thought of that verse, um, for whatever reason I had it stuck in my head, that that verse is talking about a group of already Christians, already converted people, and it's not. And so a side lesson for us in this conversation is how the Scriptures refer to those people being so noble. Those Jews in Berea were more noble than the Thessalonican Jews because they received the word with eagerness. And that should be a lesson to us in the church that we should have an eagerness about the Word and about understanding the Word and be willing to search the Scriptures to make application of that in our lives. I think many times as we think about evangelism, we think about uh, success or failure of that being on our shoulders. You know, I think that's one of the things that has sort of kept me back personally in that, being willing to talk to people. It's like, what if I mess it up, right? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing, which is certainly something we should think about, whether our life and our actions are reflective of what we're trying to talk to people about. But the truth is, at the end of the day, it's not on our shoulders to do it. It's our shoulders to take the message out. And the condition of the heart is not for us to make judgment on. The condition of the hearts of the people we're going to talk to because there's going to be all different kinds, and it's a really good message for us out of this chapter. Remember the parable of the sower that we read about in Matthew chapter 13? I don't want to read this word for word, but you remember how it talks about equating um, 
people's hearts to the different types of soil that a farmer would encounter, and you scatter the, soil, the, scatter the seed, and some of it lands on rocky soil, and some of it's on really hard ground. Remember how he described it? Some of, some of it lands on rocky ground, and this is the one that hears the word and receives it, but it's, it doesn't build roots, and so it goes away. And then some of it is sown among the thorns, and the weeds choke it out, you know, so they're not strong enough to withstand the things that come along. And some of it was sown on good soil, and that's, that's what we're talking about, the different hearts this morning, the different types of soils, the different types of hearts that the word falls on. And we got to understand that sometimes we just not, can't control that, but it's also an opportunity to us to evaluate. We can look for fertile soil. We can go look for the right kind of soil. We don't want to intentionally scatter the seed on a concrete slab. It's not going to work. We look for some dirt that's been tilled or loosened. We want those kind of hearts as well. There's different kind of hearts that are going to be more apt to hearing the gospel. And it gives us an opportunity to help evaluate that. And I think as we understand the different hearts of people and the different levels of receptiveness to the message, it leads to the next point, which we kind of already alluded to, in the fact that we're going to encounter some resistance to the message. You think about these Jews, these, even just amongst the Jews themselves that Paul encountered here. Listen to, as it, well, we're going to read verse number five again and then continue on a little bit. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the, to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So not only did... Paul get these men and women fired up about the message that he was teaching. You know, they'd obviously heard um, where he had been previous to this and some of the activities that were going on there because it describes them as the fact that he's setting the world on fire. Essentially, they turned the world upside down, and then now they're in our city doing it. So it was kind of okay when they were hanging out somewhere else, but now they're here doing these things too. And so they go into Jason's house looking for them. They don't find him, so they grab Jason. They know there was some association there and bring him out. In this case, Jason basically had to pay a bribe to be set free or bond or however you want to look at it. You know, the resistance is going to be unavoidable. And I think it's one of the things that the human nature part of all this stuff that's such a challenge is knowing that there's going to be resistance. We don't like that, naturally. We don't want resistance we want to be well-liked. We want to get along with people. At least I'm speaking for myself. You don't naturally want people to not like you. You certainly don't want to be dragged out of a house because of what you're talking about. And so you have to have a proper perspective about these things. And we have to understand that there's going to be some resistance to this. The Scriptures teach that. And experience shows that if you've done any kind of evangelistic activities, you've seen that there's some resistance. Varying forms of that, certainly but there's always going to be some resistance. Listen to how it unfolds as they move on to Berea. So that was back in Thessalonica. They leave Thessalonica and move to Berea, and this is where he started talking to some additional Jews there as well. But the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was also proclaimed, was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So the Jews in Thessalonica weren't willing to leave well enough alone, right? They couldn't find him in the house of Jason, so they you know, drugged Jason and some other brothers into that mess, brought them before the city authorities. Everybody was fired up about it. They paid their bribe, kind of let them go, but then those same Jews in Thessalonica got wind that they had moved on to Berea talking about the same stuff, and they decided to go there and stir things up as well. Certainly some significant resistance there. I remember one time we, uh, when we were going to have a gospel meeting, we went out to, I think it's John Stiff Park there on Bell Street, and there was some sort of community event going on there. We decided that would be a good place to hand out some flyers for our gospel meeting, and I remember handing a flyer to one guy, and I was young and dumb. Now I'm just old and dumb, but young, when I was young and dumb, you know, I don't know what to say to these people. Hey, we're from Amarillo Church of Christ. We're having a gospel meeting. We want to invite you to that. It's about all I knew what, what to do. And I remember handing a flyer to one guy, and he goes, oh, we hate the Church of Christ. It's kind of like, whoa, I just giving you a piece of paper, you know, that kind of a deal. And so, you know, I didn't get dragged out of a house or beat or thrown in prison or anything like that, but it still didn't feel good. And it you know, it was kind of a culture shock type of moment for me that, you know, could have just said no thanks. I mean, you didn't have to say we hate the church of Christ. So there's going to be resistance to the message, and, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. And I think about, uh, I was never a Star Trek guy, but I remember the line, resistance is futile. Maybe we should change that. Resistance is unavoidable. It's going to happen, and it's just part of the game. And we got to understand that. I think if we can accept that and learn how they dealt with that in various forms, it'll help us be more effective at evangelizing. And I think the fact that there is going to be resistance, and it's not pleasant, and it's not fun, it's not something any of us desire, makes the next point an important point, and that's the fact that there's got to be a passion for the people. You can't just be going through the motions on this stuff because it's something you think you're supposed to do. You can't just be wanting to do this because it's a checkbox on my list of the things I do to be a Christian and God asked me to do this or it's not going to be effective. You've got to have a passion for the people. In verse number 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You know, he's kind of just hanging out at this point in time in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come back and uh, to be with him. And he looks around the city of Athens, and he sees all of these idols. David talked about idols last week, right? The city of Athens apparently was overrun with them. And it, and it moved Paul. He couldn't sit by. And so this message that he preaches in Acts chapter 17 is because this stirred him up. It provoked him. It says he was provoked to do something about it. The city was full of idols. And I think this passion for people is a key driver in effective evangelism, not just evangelizing in general, but effective evangelism. And I, I think as we think about that, how do we react to the world around us? You know, how do we react to the idols David talked about? You know, if we, these idols that we have in our own lives, these idols of sin, do we hate that? Do we move past that? Does it provoke us to do something about it? As we Look around modern society, and we don't see idols in the form of gold or silver statues or stone-carved images, but there's certainly idolatry in our society. What does that do to us? Does that provoke us? Is there any passion there about seeing that, or do we just blend in with society? And I think 
one of the great lessons that, Paul, that we can find looking at Paul's life is just this passion that he had, not only for the gospel, but in everything he did and the people that he interacted with. And you remember the, the way that he talked about the Jews in Romans chapter 9 uh, and how he was equating his desire, for, uh, his desire for the Jews to come around, to come around to the idea of the gospel. Listen to what he says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was passionate enough about his desire for his, bro- his brethren, his brothers, the Jews, to be, to be saved. That, that he said, if, if, he, if I could even cut off my own salvation for them, I would do it. And that's hard for us to conceptually to deal with. And, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know the true feeling there, if he literally would give it up or if he's just trying to convey how he really felt about that. But what's inarguable is that there's a passion there for other people. And as he went about from place to place talking to these men and women in these various cities, there was a passion there that drove what he was doing. And so, after being stirred up by seeing these idols here in Athens... He begins to preach. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now this goes hand in hand with knowing our audience, but there's some subtle differences here that I want to point out and that being the fact that we need to know how to engage somebody. Knowing your audience is part of that, but, but how do we actually engage? You think about the message here. He was provoked by these, all of these idols that he saw in the city. He could have stood up immediately and said, hey, you bunch of idol worshipers, this ain't right. But he was softer with that. He was kind of indirect in his approach to them. And I think there's a lot of good lessons in that for us. You know, I think especially... In our youth, we, you know, we get fired up about something. We get fired up about the Scriptures. We want to slam, you know, we want to win battles with the Scriptures. It's a sword after all. We want to, you know, we want to take it to people and prove people wrong. And all of our motives and all the way we're going about it is all wrong. And we've got to know how to engage people here. This is the action part of it. The, the knowing your audience is the in, information part and then then the engaging is the action part of it. But he didn't immediately launch into this, you know, a big criticism of idol worship. He connected with them. And in fact, he even complimented them. He said, I perceive in every way you're very religious. He's very complimentary of them. Look, you got all these idols. Hey, it appears to me you're, you're a religious group of people. You're interested in religion. I see all this stuff. And I even see this, this idol that says, hey, to the unknown God. This has always been fascinating to me, this whole unknown God statue, right? It's like the catch-all for these people in Athens. They've got all these idols, and you would love to just see a, a true image of this, you know, what all they were worshiping. And, you know, I, were they really very religious? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it was a society that was definitely, when you read about it at the time, had a lot of stuff that we wouldn't equate with being religious people. But they had this unknown God catch-all idol, and it's so fascinating to me how Paul used that as his mechanism to engage these people. And he connected with them and complimented them 
on their desire to be religious and then use that idol that. And I think there's times where certainly being more aggressive works, right? But that, again, that goes back to knowing our audience, knowing who we're talking to, having a good feel for where they're at, maybe even in their journey learning about the gospel, when to be a little aggressive and when to not. He was very indirect in his approach here. And, and I think that's the exact point we're trying to make is, you know, we got to engage people distantly differently based on all of the information that's available to us, what we're perceiving in the situation, what we know about those people, how well we know them at that point or, or, or may not know them at that point, and it will lead us to be more effective. He used, the, uh, he used this unknown God idol as his entry point. I think over and over again, as you read about how he interacted with people, you can see this uh, how, he, how he used these different methods in engaging people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he kind of describes this about himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and beginning of verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in the blessings. That's a really good summary of what we're talking about here with how to engage people. You know, it's not an exercise... Him saying that was not an exercise in look at me. Um, you know, it's not an exercise in him being swayed by these different groups of people. It kind of reads that way a little bit that, hey, you know, whoever I was with, I kind of became like them. It's not an exercise in let me go do whatever I want in a sinful way and it's okay. If, if you're reading that passage and you're reading that into it, you're missing the boat. And go read the, all the surrounding context in that passage. He's talking about dying to himself and, and learning to live for Christ and all those kind of things. It's a really good chapter to, to really, for some personal reflection kind of stuff. He's talking about giving up personal rights for the sake of gospel, but he's not looking to his own desires at all, and he even says that at the very end. It's all for the sake of the gospel. And as we think about how we engage somebody, it's got to be for the sake of the gospel for it to be effective. So he tells them, the Athenians... Uh, that, hey, you got all these idols, I see them all. I've even seen this one that you've got your catch-all to the unknown God. I happen to know who that is, and I'm going to tell you about him. And that's his entry point into this sermon. And in verse number 17, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Think about how he engages them with the message, you know, you call him an unknown God, well, here's a description of his nature. This is the God that you're calling the unknown God, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Everything is made by him. This is his nature. 
And he doesn't need anything that we can build like these idols that you guys have laid out in front of you. So instead of just slapping them in the face with being idol worshipers, he talks about the nature of God and how that's not necessary for God. He's, a, he's not even really that critical, even, even in criticizing them about the idol worship. This stuff we can make by hand, that does nothing for God. He doesn't need us to make something for him. You call him the unknown God, but the truth is you know he's really there. And it's, it's innate in every human being that there's a feeling of that, that there's something more out there. And he's designed you that way to look for him, and he's designed you in a way that you, could, you might actually find him. And I'm here to tell you about him. So Paul not only used their own idol to describe the God that he wanted to teach them about, but he actually even went on to quote one of their own poets. Now, I didn't do a ton of research on this, but he quotes um, this guy saying, for we are indeed his offspring. Best I could find, this is from a man named Eratus, or Eratus, I don't know how you say that, wrote a poem called Phenomena, Phenomena. I don't know how you say it, I'm not a Greek guy. From Zeus, let us begin. Him do we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full as the sea and the havens thereof, always we, have all, always we all have need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring. And he, in the kindness unto men, giveth favorable signs and wakeneth the people to work, reminding them of livelihood. Even their own poets had, knew about this innate desire for God. They were misguided in that, but they knew it was there. And it's so fascinating to me that Paul even referenced this in his conversation with them. That's the knowing your audience part. Somewhere along the way, he came across this poem in Athens. Maybe at that, on that same trip, he had read something in one of these buildings that he visited. Maybe he had seen it somewhere else, but he used it to make a connection with them. It's really interesting to me on how he engaged them and how, how he used these pieces of knowledge and information and these things that he was seeing and perceiving to really interact with these people. And that's how you engage someone properly. And that's how you build a relationship to say the things you really want to say, to talk about the nature of God, to talk about why the idols before you aren't any good and don't serve any kind of real purpose. And let me tell you who the true God is, who the real unknown God is. And I think the one critical aspect to all this is we read about how he finishes this sermon is that there's a movement toward action here. You know, all of this other stuff is a little bit theoretical in the sense that you think about how to engage somebody, you got you know, you understand that there's different hearts and all that. None of that matters if you don't actually do something about it. And at some point we have to move to be effective in evangelism. We actually have to talk to people about the gospel. We actually have to present something, call them to action. And that's exactly what he does here. In verse number 29, because of this, because you're God's offspring, and even your own poet said it, we're his offspring. Because of that, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by men whom he has appointed and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Has the message changed any? It says he was in the synagogue with the Jews talking about the resurrection. Now he's talking to uh, all sorts of people in Athens about the resurrection. The message hasn't changed. But how he engaged them and how he interacted with them and he knew his audience and all these things that we're talking about has changed and led him right back to the same message. 
Here's your unknown God, and he raised a man from the dead that can change everything for you. And that's the message of the gospel. He said, there's a time of this ignorance, this idol worship that God winked at, but now he's commanded repentance. He overlooked it for a long time. I use the old, that's one of those I have a hard time getting out of my head, the old scriptures on that, the King James Version. The ESV says he overlooked that. He let that go on, but now he's calling you to repentance. So he issued a challenge only after he had done all of these other things that we've talked about. Worked on the relationship, engaged properly, understood who he was talking to. Then he issued the challenge, the corrective message. Corrected what they thought about the idols and why that was so pointless, this this idol worship. Here's the true nature of God. You think about... uh, we talked about earlier about being salesmen. If you ever talk to anybody in sales, I've had to deal with a few IT-type salespeople over the years and software salesmen especially. And if you hear them talk about sales in general, it's a different breed of a person, right? If you're a salesman, you're a different breed. You don't, I don't think that way. I think logically. If I can't put things in order and do things in a prescribed way, it doesn't make sense to me. But if you listen and watch an effective salesperson, they do all of the things that we're talking about this morning. They really get to know your business. They really want to know the pain points that you're dealing with in your business. What do you struggle with? How can we help you in that? You know, what, do you, what are you looking for? What keeps you up at night? What, what do you lose sleep over? Are there, are there any problems that you need help solving? And they really get to know you. But the one thing that they'll tell you is you have to ask for the sale. If you read any kind of book on sales, and how to be an effective salesman, they all talk about this in some form. You, at some point, you got to actually ask for the sale. We bought a, when I was with my old company, we were looking at buying a big software package from a company called SAP, and they were going to run our entire business for our merchandising sales force. And it was a $5 million deal. It was a big check. And for the longest time, they came in, and they brought in lunch, and they took us to dinner, and they sent bottles of wine to people in the business, and they sent all the SAP hats and shirts and bags that you could want. And they flew out from Dallas and other parts of the country, brought in executives that lived on the, on the various coasts, brought them in. It was a big deal to them. It was a new software that they were launching. They wanted, really wanted a flagship customer on this product. Everybody in their company was interested in doing this deal. And we were months into the conversation, and not a single person had asked for the sale yet. And finally, one of their executives said, it just dawned on us, we haven't asked you guys to buy this. We've shown you all what it is. We've told you how we can help you out. We haven't asked if you're ready to move forward with it. And you can do the whole dog and pony show about Jesus and the message and the resurrection of the dead and get to know them and understand your audience and know what they're doing currently, and you can do all these things, and if we never actually ask them to obey the gospel, they're not going to do it. There's a call to action there that we have to execute on, and doing all of these other things gives us the opportunity to do that, and that's exactly what he did here. And that's what Paul did. He asked for the sale. Now listen to how this ends up here. In verse number 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with him. 
The final lesson that we get from this sermon here in Athens is that there's varying results. Just like there's varying hearts that we encounter, the results of that vary. And I think it's really, really important for us to understand that because we're going to get results that we don't like. And if you've done any kind of door knocking or talking to people or any of that kind of stuff, you've seen this. And it's just part of, the, it's just part of how things work. You're going to get results you don't like, and it's critical to understand it because you're going to get down about it. And if you don't have the right passion for the people and all this other stuff, it's going to get you down. And at the end of the day, after all of this buildup and after this sermon that we look at, and it's the sermon gets you fired up when you read it. Oh, you got an unknown God? I'm going to tell you about it. You get fired up thinking about Paul talking to these people about their unknown God. And after all this buildup and all this stuff, and it feels like he executed all this so perfectly, at the end of the day, the best he got was mixed results. It said there's some people that mocked him about this resurrection of the dead. What are you talking about, you crazy guy? Some people were kind of intrigued by it, said, hey, we'll hear you again about this matter. We're willing to listen to some more. And then some people believed and followed him. So the results were, the results were mixed, but we're, but we're going to see that, and we can't get discouraged by it. And the lesson is that we've got to keep our heads up about it. We are going to fail more than we, than we succeed. It's not our job to evaluate the success rate. It's our job to take the message. That's what we've been asked to do. Nowhere in the Scripture can you find that it's our job to go evaluate the success rate of the gospel. Matter of fact, you can find the opposite, and we're going to read about that. But I think about, uh, as a baseball fan, I think about how people define success in baseball. You know, if you're one of the elite hitters in baseball, you're going to fail seven out of ten times depending on which stats you want to look at. When I was younger, 7 out of 10, because batting average used to matter. It doesn't matter anymore, but say 6 out of 10, right? If you get on base 4 times out of 10, you're considered elite. You fail 60% of the time. If I did that at my job, I would have been fired a long time ago. That's unacceptable, right? And I think preaching the gospel and evangelism looks a little bit like baseball batting average, maybe not even as successful. 3 out of 10 is probably... You talk to people that do evangelistic type work, they would probably take three out of ten any day. It's going to be a challenge. The success rate is not always going to be there. And we have to focus on our part of the job. And as we close, I want us to really think about that, not just get discouraged by the, the idea of the results or what that looks like and, you know, not losing heart over the results and that. And Paul talked about this a little bit. In his message to the Corinthians, he's talking to them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about divisions and how people are seeking after their own desires and you know, kind of wanting to be the, the, the number one person and really focusing on their own self and, kinda the, and that kind of thing. So he talks about, listen to what he says in verse number 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He's essentially saying, that's all we are. Like, there's nothing special about us. All we are were the guys that brought you the message. And all that was was what we were told to do. We're just doing our duty there. So don't put Apollos on a pedestal. Don't put me on a pedestal. Quit with all this division stuff. We're just all servants here. He said, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
And I think that's the lesson in real-world evangelism, that we have a job to do with that. And there's concepts and skills that we can learn in doing that job, but it's not our job to evaluate the results of that. Are we happy when somebody obeys the gospel? Of course we are. Are we happy if we do a good job? Of course we want to, we want to be effective in that. Nobody wants to be ineffective in doing any kind of job. But we can't get stirred up about a failure rate of 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 or 99 out of 100, whatever the number is. He said, you water, you plant, you water, and we'll leave the increase to God. And if we'll do our part, God will do his part. That's the ironic part of all this. And that's, that's what we see here in Athens. You know, they planted the seed. They followed up on it. You look at his time in these missionary journeys. He revisited and he went back and revisited some of these churches that were established and went back to check on people. And God gave the increase. It's real world evangelism. If you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel, I hope that you'll attend this month as we do these series of studies in the book of Acts. They're really powerful conversion messages. If you're on the fence about what that means for you or the nature of the God that we talked about today, the nature of the unknown God, then you can learn a lot about that this month as we go through these conversion studies and look at the men and women and the kind of hearts that the word fell on and the kind of Actions were taken by the people that were preaching to these folks. And it's just a, it's going to be a really good month and a, and a study on that. And hopefully we can think about this real-world evangelism and learn how to apply some of this as we learn about these things this month. And if you need to obey that gospel this morning, we certainly urge you to do that. If you have any other need that the church can help you with, we want to offer an invitation at this time to help you with that as well. If you'll come and have a seat on the front as we sing this invitation song.